0: Turn with me, Uh, our text is from Hebrews 7, it's going to be the whole chapter, uh, verses 1 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest With an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus seated right now at your right hand. Give us ears to hear Jesus interceding at this very moment on our behalf. Give us hearts to treasure Jesus. Our all sufficient advocate in the throne room of heaven itself through whom we pray. Amen. In his poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, T.S. Eliot narrates the internal thoughts of a thoroughly modern man who's struggling with frustration, regret, emptiness, and an unshakable sense of his own inadequacy. And in one particularly poignant stanza, Proofrock, the main character, says to himself, though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet. And here is no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. And I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. Now, what's Eliot describing there? He's describing that deep, anxious awareness of not being enough, right? Of not being that important, not being what you could have been, what you should have been not accomplishing the greatness you dreamed of. And with it, he's describing the fear of what all that means about the final verdict over one's <laughs> life. When Proofrock, in the poem crosses over the threshold of death and hears the ultimate assessment of his entire existence, what will it be? I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. He imagines the final verdict over his life doesn't even merit a word. Just a disappointed, mocking laugh. Do you feel that? Do you carry that fear around with you? I think part of the reason that poem is so famous is because it puts into words That hard-to-name feeling that is so familiar to so many of us. That my life is insubstantial. That despite all my efforts, all my strivings, I am insubstantial, incomplete. That the verdict over my life will be nothing more than a snicker. Now, of course, in American culture, we don't say that part out loud, do we? Our motto is, I am enough. I'm perfect just the way I am. And we say it over and over again to ourselves. But even though it's really common to hear people talking that way, even though it is a societal slogan, frankly, if we really believed that, we wouldn't have to spend so much effort trying to convince ourselves it's true. Do you see what I mean? We know we're incomplete. The evidence inside of us and outside of us is undeniable. That's why we work so hard to tell ourselves otherwise. If we're honest, I imagine most of us are intimately acquainted with the fear that T.S. Eliot describes. In fact, that fear may very well be the engine behind so much of what we're doing with our lives. Whether you believe in God or not, we desperately want a verdict, to be declared over our lives, don't we? Affirming that we matter, that there's something good and beautiful about us, that we haven't wasted our lives. And what? And in short, we are afraid. Afraid that our incompleteness, our undeniable incompleteness, means that we'll never actually get it. And that desperation often drives us to spend every moment of our existence fighting, aching, scrapping to prove ourselves, trying to secure that verdict that we're so hungry to hear. The atheist and the believer both want, at an existential level, they both need a validation, a voice that cries out, well done, good and faithful. But Hebrews 7 tells us that for the Christian... For the one who runs to Jesus, the final verdict over your life isn't a disappointed snicker or a disgusted scowl or an angry snarl. The final verdict over your life is an eternal embrace. Hebrews tells us that the ultimate assessment over you and me doesn't sound like a derisive, mocking laugh. What does it sound like? It sounds like a laugh of joy. An exclamation of delight. Why? Because the verdict over your life isn't based on the greatness of your life or lack thereof. It's based on the greatness of another life. It's based on the greatness of the priest who lives in the presence of God to represent you and intercede on your behalf. And if we can hear that truth today, if we can internalize that promise, if the never-ending priesthood of Jesus can sink down deep in our bones, then it will displace the fearful J. Alfred rock inside of us and animate an utterly new, utterly liberating way of living and being in the world. So we're going to explore Hebrews 7 in three steps. We're going to consider the whole within us, the whole priest, And the wholeness he offers. So, first, the whole within us. Let's remember the book of Hebrews is written to whom? To a community of Jewish Christians who are feeling tempted and pressured to go back to the temple, to go back to Jerusalem, and to relate to God according to all the rituals and practices of the Old Testament law that had governed Israel's life for centuries and centuries. And Hebrews, the entire book, is calling out to them, don't turn back. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything that came before him because he is the one to whom everything was always pointing. And here in Hebrews 7, the point of the entire wide-ranging discussion is simply that Jesus is a better high priest than the high priest who served in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, according to the Old Testament, the high priest descended from Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. The high priest was the one who would represent Israel, enter into the presence of God in the most holy place behind the veil, and present sacrifices to cover and cleanse the sins of the people. Through the high priest, Israel as a nation could taste life in the presence of God and could have their sins dealt with so that they could continue to dwell with their Lord. And especially for a Jewish Christian, in the first generation of the church, when the temple was still standing and the high priest was conducting his business as usual, there would have been a significant social and cultural and political and familial and economic pressure To return to those familiar religious practices. The practices of their nation, of their people. To return to the high priest in Jerusalem and approach God through his mediating work. But Hebrews exhorts them not to go back to that high priest. Why? Because that high priest can't actually give them what they're searching for. In the midst of all the details of Hebrews 7's argument... One point keeps getting repeated over and over. The sacrificial system can't solve your deepest problem because it can't actually make you complete. It can't make you whole. When you hear that language in Hebrews 7 of perfection, that's the idea that's in view. Completeness, wholeness. Being the substantive human person you were made to be, full of mature virtue and godly character, having no deficiency or lack. Hebrews 7 tells us that kind of perfection, that kind of completeness, isn't attainable through the old priesthood. The law that instructed Israel on how to present their sacrifices to God, quote, made nothing perfect. What's he getting at? The author's reminding them that life under that system of sacrifices and cleansings was a never-ending cycle. A never-ending cycle. All sorts of things, from intentional behaviors to involuntary bodily functions, could render you ceremonially unclean. And so then you'd go through all the protocols to be made clean once again, only to become unclean all over again and start the process at square one. That was life. If you sinned against the Lord, you'd bring the proper sacrifice and you'd be restored by grace into communion. But you know it'd only be a matter of time before you needed to bring yet another sacrifice because you had failed yet again. That is the human condition. On the day of atonement, the 10th day of the 7th month, the high priest would go through this elaborate ritual to sacrifice and cleanse away all the sins of the nation. But guess what? They'd mark the day on the calendar for next year, too. Because when the 10th day of the 7th month rolled around the next year, he'd have to do the exact same thing to atone for a fresh collection of sins and stains. It's an infinite back and forth. A perpetual loop. You never actually arrive at a status and stay there. And hear this. This is important. That is not a bug in the Old Testament system. That's not a bug. That's a feature. Because as Hebrews emphasizes, the entire point of that constant choreography of life was to teach Israel about themselves and about what it takes to restore fragmented people into the presence of God. It was a choreography to prepare them for something better that was on its way. All the priests and their sacrifices showed Israel that they needed cleansing and renewal to be accepted by God and to live before his face, but those sacrifices were not designed to decisively deal with the incompleteness. The deficiency, the hole within them that was underneath their constant failure and falling short. So Hebrews 7 is asking to them, why would you go back to a high priest who can't truly solve the hole in your being? At the heart of who you are. Why would you go back to a high priest who can't make you whole and secure for you the verdict the status that you are starving for. Why would you do it? Now, as we've seen time and again in Hebrews, the temptations of these Jewish believers in the middle of the first century are not exactly the temptations that we face, right? We are not in danger of returning to the high priest in the Jerusalem temple. Not least because the temple's been gone for 19 and a half centuries, And there's no functioning high priest or continuing sacrificial system. We're not going back to Israel's high priest. We're much more likely to try to act as our own high priest. That's the way we'll make the replacement. Modern people don't look to someone else to be a high priest for us. We take that responsibility upon ourselves. And that's true whether you are religious or irreligious. Consider, religious people work so hard to be good enough and do good enough to win God's approval. When they fail, they punish themselves internally and beat themselves up. And they promise over and over again to do better next time so that God won't push them away. What is that? That's priestly work. It's offering. It's sacrifice. It's attempted atonement. To try to make sure we're acceptable to God. To cover up what's incomplete. To seal his verdict over me. To seal his embrace. But irreligious people do this too. They just try to fill up the hole with different things. If you want to diagnose this impulse in yourself, just ask, what is the one thing that if I had it, I'd finally feel whole? What's the missing piece I'm seeking to make me significant, valuable, worthy, complete? Is it control, safety, money? Is it approval or beauty or comfort? Is it power or success? Those are common gods in our pantheon, aren't they? However, you would answer that question, that is your God. And it is calling you to serve it as high priest. Do you hear it? How so? The way those gods always function is they demand that you sacrifice and serve them in order to earn them. In order to inch toward a taste of their glory, you have to sacrifice people and relationships, and other parts of your life, other good things to get close enough to finally reach out and try to grasp the thing you're chasing for meaning. So that maybe, just maybe, that God will smile upon me, that God might render the blessing you're aching for. Perhaps it'll fill you up. And ultimately, they don't stop demanding Until you've sacrificed your very self. Idols, false gods that we serve like priests to try to make our lives finally matter. They require human sacrifice. They're just as demanding and insatiable as the most bloodthirsty pagan gods of old. They will not be satisfied with anything less than the sacrifice of your entire self. The workaholic who's on a quest for recognition and advancement in her job, will sacrifice all sorts of things along the way, but she'll eventually find that in the ongoing race to achieve, she is the offering. Getting her God requires that she devote her entire being to the quest. The man who serially sleeps around to try to gain a sense of power or to prove to himself that he's lovable and acceptable and desirable, will offer up other people's bodies and emotional welfare on the altar of his worship. But he'll have to give himself away too. The God demands that he sacrifice his own body, his own heart, in order to taste the blessing he's after. But notice, just like with the Old Testament high priest, when you are your own high priest, you are caught in a never-ending cycle, are you not? You know what I'm talking about. When you're the one responsible for working and laboring and sacrificing to achieve your status and create your meaning and secure your verdict, your life will be an absolute psychological roller coaster. It will be. When you've worked hard enough performing and feel like you've succeeded, you will be momentarily on top of the world. You'll taste the glory. You'll feel great about yourself, like your life's finally been validated. The glory that your idol promised will be yours for just a tick. And you'll probably end up being insufferable because you'll spend all your time looking down on all those little plebs who can't measure up to you. But when you failed, when you've disobeyed God or missed out on someone's approval or come across someone so beautiful or successful that you feel hideous and worthless in comparison, you will be thrust into despair. You'll hate yourself for falling short. You'll be resentful and angry at the people who managed to perform better than you. You'll be exhausted at the prospect of having to work your way back toward the blessing again. You'll fear that your life doesn't really matter after all, and you will be more aware than ever of the continuing gaping hole in your existence. When you are your own high priest, it's a perpetual back and forth between success and failure, between feeling clean and feeling dirty, safe and endangered, accepted, rejected, worthy of honor, shrouded in shame. Because what was true of the Old Testament high priesthood is true of your high priesthood as well. It cannot make you complete. No amount of sacrifice you put into achieving your religious or irreligious idols is ultimately capable of fixing what is missing in you and giving you the deep validation, affirmation, and security that you're longing for. For that, you need a fundamentally different kind of priest. So let's consider number two, the whole priest. Back in Hebrews 5, I think this is kind of funny, The author of this letter said he had much to say about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And boy, did he. Here in chapter 7, he indeed has a lot to say about Melchizedek. But the main goal of all the description of Melchizedek and the extended comparison with Jesus is to press home the fact that Jesus, who fulfills and deepens the pattern of Melchizedek, is a better priest who accomplishes a better work than any priest before him in the line of error. And the argument really is tailored for people who are wavering about going back into the temple system. So the author says that in their ancestor Abraham, the Levites, in a sense, gave tithes to Melchizedek before they were even born. So if the Levites honored Melchizedek, And Jesus is a greater Melchizedek, then truly honoring the Levites means honoring the kind of priest that they honored. You see how that works? Melchizedek is the king of Salem. What's that? It's another name for Jerusalem. Huh. And if Jesus is the greater Melchizedek, then he is the true king of Jerusalem. And truly returning to Jerusalem, in fact, means returning to Jerusalem's rightful king. Those are the types of comparisons that the author is inviting his first century Jewish Christian audience to consider. It's really an extraordinary argument. But as he works out the implications of Jesus' connection to Melchizedek, he touches on several dimensions of Jesus' priesthood that speak straight to the heart of people like us who sense our incompleteness and yet long to know that we're embraced. First, Jesus is a royal priest. In Israel, the high priest and the king were two separate individuals. But just like Melchizedek, Jesus is a king and a priest all at the same time. Now think about what that means. It means that the king who has the authority to rule over you is the priest who willingly advocates on your behalf. Huh? If that's true, then you can obey any command. You can trust him in any trial because the king who directs you has already proven that he is completely devoted to your good. And it also means that the priest who advocates on your behalf is the king who possesses ultimate authority. And if that's true, you never have to doubt how God sees you. Or whether he accepts you. Why? Because, as we like to sing, he will not turn away the presence of his son when the king of the cosmos comes in to mediate for you as a priest in his presence. Now, a king who isn't devoted to your good, that's a hard king to trust. And a priest who has no authority to fully secure your blessing, he's an unsure hope. But Jesus is both of them all at the same time for you. He is a royal priest. Second, Jesus is a complete priest. A complete priest. In Israel, the high priest was a sinner just like everybody else. Which meant that whenever he approached God, he had to deal with his own stains before he could deal with anyone else's. Before he could even approach the altar. The Old Testament says every priest had to wash his hands and his feet to be cleansed and prepared for service every single time, over and over and over again. And on the day of atonement, the high priest had to present a sacrifice for his own corruption before he was allowed to make atonement for the people. Why? Because every priest was just as incomplete as we are, just as deficient, just as susceptible to sin and death, just as stained, just as unworthy, to enter God's presence on their own merits as we are. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus has been made perfect forever. Remember, that means made complete forever. That doesn't mean he was imperfect before, but he's spotless now. It means that over the course of his entire human life, Jesus faced every kind of opportunity to turn away from God in fear and faithlessness and selfishness and self-preservation. But he persevered in the midst of unspeakable hardship and pain. He lived the complete life that we should have but couldn't. In every kind of place, in every kind of darkness, where we always seem to give God our no, Jesus looked square in its eye, took another step deeper into the darkness, and gave God his yes. His life reveals that Jesus is the truly whole human. If there had been a crack in him, it would have been exposed by what he suffered, but he came out complete. He lived the whole human life. Hebrews says he's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Like Melchizedek, Jesus bears the name King of Righteousness. He is the righteous king, utterly pure, undefiled. And that means he has the right. He alone has the right. To stand on his own two feet in the presence of the living God. No washing or sacrifice ever required. It means his attention is undividedly devoted to you. He's not dealing with his own issues before he gets around to taking care of yours. And even more than that, it means that he is worthy to present himself. As the spotless sacrifice to make you clean. On the day of atonement, the priest slaughtered the sacrifice. And only then entered behind the curtain with blemish-free blood. Into the presence of God to cleanse away the sins of Israel. And that's precisely what Jesus has done. Do you see? He was slain at the cross. He rose on the third day and he ascended into heaven. Behind the veil, through the curtain as an unstained priest to present his blemish-free blood and cleanse away our sins once and for all. The day of atonement is fulfilled in the work of Jesus. Now, when you live like your own high priest, your, your idols inevitably say, lay down your life to get my glory. That's what they say. But Jesus, the high priest, was worthy enough and loving enough To lay down his life to give you his glory. Third, Jesus is an eternal priest. He's an eternal priest. Verse 8 describes Israel's priests as mortal. It literally says they are dying men. They are mediators who are actively in the process of dying. They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood Permanently because he continues forever. Jesus wasn't the next Levite up after the previous one died. He became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Hebrews 7 wants you to see that the Son of God, who has lived from eternity past and who took on flesh and overcame death in his resurrection, now aims his indestructible life before the God of glory toward mediating for you. Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. The complete priest, the whole human, lives before the very face of God to cover you, to cleanse you, to pray for you, to sympathize with you. To supply your deepest needs. He, he stands before the face of God to represent you. What does that mean? It means that when God looks at your feeble, porous, hole-riddled, incomplete life, he sees the absolute completeness of Jesus. And he regards you Accordingly. When God looks at you, he looks at you through Jesus, your priest, who never stops advocating on your behalf. And when God sees you like one image superimposed on another, he sees you fully clothed in all the beauty and righteousness and worthiness and wholeness of Jesus himself, the complete human being. Right this very moment. Right this very moment, and at every moment, for the rest of time, you have an eternal priest who is on the job for you. And there will never be a second, no matter how terrible your circumstances, no matter how dark the night that seems to enshroud you, no matter how loud the whispers of doubt and accusation may be ringing in your ears, there will never be a second... When Jesus is not making intercession for you and securing for you the unmitigated yes of God. It is yours. Fourth, Jesus is an effective priest. He's an effective priest. All these characteristics. Jesus' royalty, his completeness, his eternality. When you bring them all together, together, they mean that Jesus is absolutely effective in his high priestly work. The Old Testament high priest could not break out of the cycle of new stains. And your high priesthood, your sacrifices for your idols, they cannot break you out of your cycle of fresh failure and shame. But Jesus offered himself once for all. And right before he died on the cross, he cried out just like we did a few moments ago. It is finished. It is all finished. Because his sacrifice broke the cycle. It definitively cleansed his people. Jesus has secured for us a status and a verdict that will never be taken away. Verse 22 calls Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I like the King James version because it uses the word surety. What does that mean? A surety can refer to a person who makes a payment on someone's behalf as a promise that an obligation is going to be fulfilled. But it can also refer to the payment itself. Jesus is our surety in verse 22. Which one is it? It's both. Jesus is the surety, the one who pays, who's made the payment. That absolutely ensures that all of God's glorious promises will reach their completion. Not just in the cosmos at large, but in you and me. And he's the surety. He's the payment itself. Who offered up his whole life. To make certain that not one of God's promises will ever fall short now or through the far stretches of time. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. And if my surety stands before the throne right now and always with my name on his hands, then I can know. That even in the midst of all my inadequacies and incompleteness, God sees me complete in Jesus and gives me his resounding yes right now. That's why it says in Hebrews, he is able to save me to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost, all the way, no turning back. I can know that God wraps me up in the embrace of his presence and will never let me go. I can know that one day, The God who sees me complete right now will make me complete in glory. I can say with my head held high, I am not what I should be. But I am not yet what I will be. Because before the throne, my surety stands. Third, I want us to briefly consider the wholeness that Jesus offers. In T.S. Eliot's poem, Prufrock saw the eternal footman Take his coat and snicker. Remember. But, Christian, in Jesus, you have seen the eternal priest take away your sin and smile. How would it change your life if you knew you had that kind of advocate before God? If Jesus is your priest, you can finally rest. Rather than living under the agonizing pressure to be your own high priest, constantly laboring to achieve a verdict, an affirmation, a blessing, you can rest in Jesus as your high priest. Living from the confidence that your verdict is secure and not rooted one bit in your most recent success or failure, you can rest. If Jesus is your priest, you can get off of the psychological roller coaster. Excuse me, I'd like to stop the ride. You don't have to live in the constant, unyielding ebb and flow of glory and shame, pride and despair. Jesus lives as your intercessor before God now and forevermore. The verdict is in and it shall not be rescinded. What does that do? It makes possible a kind of emotional psychological and spiritual stability that can grow resilient against the highs of momentary success and the lows of our inevitable failures. He lets you off the roller coaster and offers an equilibrium of security and love. If Jesus is your priest, you can stop sacrificing yourself for your idols and start laying down your life in love. Here's the thing, you're always going to be sacrificing yourself one way or the other. The real question is simply, will my self-sacrifice be for myself in pursuit of wholeness? Or will my self-sacrifice be for God and others from the security of my wholeness? Hmm. Our idols call us to lay down our lives out of desperation to try to win The verdict. But Jesus calls us to lay down our lives in confidence and joy because the verdict is already won. If your life is hid with Christ on high, you don't have to sacrifice yourself for yourself. You're free to give yourself away fearlessly. When Jesus is your priest, what all this creates is what we might call a lightness of being. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It makes sense to me. A lightness of being. What do I mean by that? If you're fighting for existential survival every moment of every day, life becomes an exhausting grind. Every second is heavy with expectations and pressures. Every word, every interaction, every event, every obstacle... It carries life or death significance because we're carrying the burden of securing our blessing. But if my complete and effective priest ever lives above for me to intercede. Then the burden of blessing isn't mine to bear. I can take myself less seriously. I can evaluate the different pieces of my life finally in their proper perspective. Everything's not apocalyptic after all. I can be honest about my inadequacies and yet stubbornly confident about my status and my hope. The weight's been lifted. Oh, my soul arise. The weight has been lifted. I can move through the world with joy, with laughter, with flexibility, with a lightness of heart, a lightness of being. Because I know who I am in Jesus in spite of who I am in myself. It's a beautiful place to live. How can we cultivate that kind of life? The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once wrote this tremendous counsel in a letter to a friend of his. Here's what he said. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty. And yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners. Even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye. Settled on you in love. And repose in his almighty arms. That could have been a letter based on Hebrews 7. For every look... You take at your incomplete self, take 10 looks at your complete savior and learn to look at him, learn to see him where he actually is. What do I mean by that? He's not merely crucified for your sins. He's not merely risen from the dead. He's not merely seated on the throne of heaven. He is at the same time your priest who is interceding for you. Learn to see him there. When you look to Jesus, see him ceaselessly serving on your behalf. You don't have to live in the snicker of the eternal footman. You can live much in the smiles of God precisely because your priest has secured God's laugh of delight over you. And he lives eternally as your advocate to seal God's Eternal. Yes. Now when Melchizedek, the royal priest, met Abraham, Genesis 14 tells us that Melchizedek laid out a meal of bread and wine. And he blessed Abraham. Hmm. Your royal priest has done the exact same thing. And even more. Your royal priest has spread on this table the bread and wine of his own body and blood, joyfully given for you. And as you come today to feast in faith, I want you to strain your ears, I want you to listen closely. Because as you take this meal, you may find that you are almost able to hear the echoes of heaven. With a shout of blessing, the verdict of love that your great high priest has won for you. Let's pray.